Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. want to uh, deliver a message I've entitled, How Should a Christian Respond to His Enemy? Romans uh, chapter 12, 17 to 21. Take your Bible and turn to that if you have your Bible with you, as we'll take this time to teach uh, God's wonderful Word. How should you respond as a Christian to your enemy? Do you have enemies? Some of you are so nice, you'd say, like, no, you shouldn't have any enemies. The reality is, is that we have enemies, every one of us. People that don't like us. They'd be happy if they read the paper and saw that all sorts of tragedy came our way. You know that? Sometimes in our sin, we hurt people. We run over people. We may not have meant to. Maybe we did it before we were saved in our effort to get ahead, whatever that is. It's not lettuce, but we've hurt people. And, uh, and, and if you are a Christian, and we should never hurt anyone, uh, people will disdain you just because you represent Christ. I have on the introduction, you cannot live and move in this world of ours without having enemies. It's impossible. It's a fact. There will be people, and there are people, that uh, do not think highly of me nor you for all sorts of reasons. Some of your enemies will use their tongues like swords against you, while others would physically harm you if they could. They would do it. If they could, if they thought they could do it and get away with it, they could. They would. That's the world we live in. It's no friend of grace. And if you are saved, then you represent the Savior and His grace. So what are we to do? What I say, what are we to do with those who hate us? Should we hate them back? That happens a lot, doesn't it? You hate me, I hate you. You know, it's the Hatfield and the McCoys. You shoot me, I'll shoot you. It goes on for years. No one's really sure how it started. They just hate each other. Well, that doesn't take any effort to do that, right? That's just natural. They bit me, I bite them, plus. Sort of the way the world in which we live in. Do we seek revenge? Right? I don't get mad, I get even. You ever hear that? Mm -hmm. Do we gather around us a whole parade of people to stand against them? Ah, we have that tendency. How are we... How are we to please this, the Lord in this difficult area of life which uh, confronts every one of us? How are we to handle this? If you name the name of Christ the Lord as your Savior, does the Lord have something to say about this as to how to handle that student uh, uh, in the classroom or on the ball team or at the workplace who just despises you? I found this to be true when I was in high school. I Entered uh, as a sophomore our high school and went out. I played football a number of years and went out for uh, the team and uh, 
and really gave my all. I wanted to make the varsity my sophomore year. I mean, it was 160 guys out, and it was a big school, uh, 900 in my class. And there were 160 out on the first day of practice. I never saw anything like it. And trying to make that, that squad not get cut and then cut to the JV was, uh, boy, I, and they were big boys. It was different than Little Loop where everybody weighed in. <laughs> and if you were overweight, you didn't play. We had six foot, four guys, 320-pound Dennis Mazur and, and the like. They were frightful to a guy who was 168 pounds, you know. I thought, well, I'm going to die or try. Well, as it turned out, the, uh, the, uh, Wayne, Wayne Peters and myself were the only two sophomores to make the varsity uh, and, uh, and even the eventually letter that year. But in the process of that, there were some upperclassmen I found out that hated me. I found that out because uh, a guy by the name of Dennis Miller, not the comedian, <laughs> but uh, he was an upperclassman and uh, I had taken his position. The head coach said, Zabolski, you're here on the red team, and Miller, you're down here. So one day at practice, he was really irritated with me and said, I'm meeting you after practice. And I said, Dennis, I didn't do anything to you. After practice. Well, I took my time in the locker room. I was the last one to leave. And out there, and sure enough, there, he was there with about five of his guys. He was going to beat the snot out of me. And my father was supposed to pick me up. And I went out there. I didn't even put my sweater on. I figured, why get that messed up? <laughs> Took my books and my sweater and laid it down. And he came over. And I, I, I didn't hurt the guy, but he hated me just because of, just because. And he took a swing at me and hit me in the nose. And I don't remember what else after, but I was on top of him on the pavement and didn't want to hurt the guy, you know, still trying to restrain him. And... Uh, that's another story. I won't get into too much more. But the head coach came out, thank the Lord, at the right time. Yeah, hey, you boys, you know. And all of a sudden, they, it's the coach, everybody off. And they took off. And I was glad. And I got my sweater and books and went over and waited for my father. And he came in about five minutes later. I said, Dad, Dad why, why couldn't you have been five minutes earlier? <laughs> you know? And he looked at me and he said, what happened to you? And uh, what's the other guy look like? You know? And uh, he... <laughs> And I said, oh, it was this deal, you know, I beat him out for the position, and he didn't like me. I'm a likable guy, but he didn't like me. He wanted to beat my face in, he said. And I said, oh, well, did you beat him? My father wanted to. <laughs> That's what he'd always say. Now, listen, he'd say, look, don't pick a fight, but if it comes your way, please, don't run, <laughs> you know. You just, you got to do what you got to do, do it, and that's it. You know, like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't wake up that morning thinking, uh, and that, that's a whole different realm. That's just, that has nothing to do with godliness or serving the Lord, but people, you know, we just live life, and people, you know, it irritates them. They're maybe jealous that you look so beautiful or handsome, or you have a nice personality, or you have some possessions they want, or they want your position. It just, it just happens. People that have sin natures and they're jealous and it just happens. We could give past the mic around. Maybe it's in a family, a sister or a brother. Mom always loved you best. Remember that? That kind of a thing. And it happens. How are we to handle this thing? Well, Paul's been telling us 
uh, of the work of the gospel in our life. Chapters 1 to 8 is just that, the true gospel. And he gives these different, uh, like, rippling effects of the gospel in chapter 12 in our lives. And now we come to the last section of that. He's saying, if, listen, if you know Christ as your Savior, then the, the gospel will work its way out in these hard areas in your life and in mine, particularly as it relates to those who hate us, despise us, would hurt us if they could, and they do. He closes the section dealing with this important matter. He tells us how to respond to the evil that has been done to us. Well, there are in these few verses, uh, verses 17 to 21, three directives instructing us to the godly response when you and I are wronged by our enemies, directing us as to how to respond. If we do this, if we respond like we are commanded to here, I'm reminded that we'll reflect Christ in the midst of darkness. But more than that, it may be the last thing that that person needs to see them come to Christ. And so let's read our text in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink in doing this. You'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, three directives in this short text instructing us to the godly response when we are wronged by our enemies. The first response is simply this. We must never return evil for evil. I'm saying that you will be tempted to do so. It'll be natural. It's of the flesh. When uh, you are wronged and somebody bops you in the head, so to speak, to bop them in the head in return. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing new about that. There's nothing unusual about that. I'm saying that you'll be tempted to do that. I'll see you in Rasia. Wham. And in certain ways. What he is saying here in verse 17 is that we as Christians, those who possess the true gospel, must never return evil for evil. Paul begins in verse 14 by making the assumption, or by by restating verse 14, and we saw that earlier, we are to bless those who persecute you. We are to be blessers. We saw that last time. We're to be those that bless, we're to be those that empathize, we're to live a care, uh, an easygoing life, easy to get along with life with others. We're to be blessers and to bless those that persecute uh, us. And it makes the assumption in this that we will be hurt. It's a first-class condition for those who are into grammar. 
it assumes that it will be so, that we will be hurt. Will be. But he further extends his teaching in, from verse 14 to say, we are not only to bless those and not curse them, but more, we are never to move beyond that point to the point of revenge. Never are we to do that. Never. Now, this is a most difficult thing. This is not one of the easy teachings of the Word of God. This is a hard one. This is where the rubber really meets the road. If you and I possess the gospel in our hearts and lives, we're not to ever return evil for evil. Now, the Old Testament taught an eye for an eye in Exodus chapter 21. Uh, It says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. The Scriptures taught that. Uh, But I remind you that uh, this only ever pertained to Israel's civil justice. That's government. Never, never personal revenge. Some of you are familiar with the word in in the Latin, lex talionis. The lex talionis. It's the law of revenge. Sometimes you'll see these uh, films with the mafia, you know, where they'll Charlie's brother gets killed and Lex Talionis, and then we go after the other family and take out two of their sons. The eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth was never, never for personal uh, uh, revenge or vengeance. It was a governance for civil authority, and it was to be meted out according to justice. It was never to be for you and I as vigilantes to carry it out. Never. Uh, Romans 13, verse 4. A few verses later. Uh, I think we have that down on our... T- look at Romans 13, 4. For uh, he that's... Uh, he uh, is uh, God's servant. It's referring to the government and to, their, to, their, to their, uh, the one who bears the sword. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. For he that is the government or the government official, the policeman, if you will, he's God's servant. He's an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the evildoer. You see a few verses later in chapter 13, Paul is going to say there's a place for enforcement of justice, criminal justice, and that's the government. Aren't you glad that we have a government? There was a period of time in human history, if we understand our Bible right, where there was no human government. Uh, the government didn't actually begin till Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where God gave the authority to take life collectively by government, by collective sense of man and uh, to deal with other forms of justice to lesser degrees. It's implied right in that in Genesis 9-6. I'm glad if someone meets me in the hallway at night in my house uninvited that uh, I can call 911 and somebody really answers the phone and they'll really come and they'll come armed to protect. It may be a little late at that point, but there's somebody there to enforce the common good, and to promote uh, the suppression of evil. That's what it is. I mean, evil proliferates when it goes unabated and undealt uh, with. Uh, Proverbs teaches that all the way through. We see that. 
And so they're God's servants to suppress the evil. It could be far worse. You say, well, life is bad. I've read the headlines in the paper today. I'm telling you, it could be far, far worse. Now, that's given to government. It's not given for, to you and to me uh, to uh, revenge ourselves or avenge, uh, avenge when wrongs have been done to us. The authority given to government. Well, D, uh, never is one more like the Lord Jesus when he takes an affront without rising to defend himself. This uh, We're moving into the Passion Week, and the Passion comes from the Greek, means suffering. The week uh, our Lord suffered, he went uh, to Jerusalem. And you may want to take uh, John Mar- Mark's Gospel and, and read the, uh, those chapters given during this period of time Day after day, as our Lord, that last week he lived, went to the cross. One thing about our Lord is that uh, he was wronged, severely wronged, slandered and beaten and nailed to the cross. And he, was, he never opened his mouth. He never defended himself. And, and so I'm saying to you that when you and I respond to personal enemies, we bear a likeness to Christ. Again, we're not talking national enemies. Leo Tolstoy and War and Peace was all messed up in his theology on this. He thought from the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord was teaching pacifism and that you know, all we had to do is get rid of the army and the policemen, get rid of uh, government, and we could all just hug. I don't know what he was smoking, somebody said. Absolutely nonsense in this fallen world. He's not talking that. We have national enemies and national defense. He's not talking that. Think about it accurately, biblically, but personal enemies. And when we are personally uh, affronted or hurt, not to defend ourselves, not to counterattack and grab them by the throat or the collar and to beat them silly. Oh, you may feel like it. You will. But to surrender that and all your rights to the Lord. I'm saying to you that it's only the Spirit of God in you has evidence that you are true possessors of the gospel that allows you to respond like that. And when you do, you'll never more mirror the Lord Jesus Christ. They spit at him. Can you imagine that? The Creator glory. They grabbed his beard and they yanked it out. I can't imagine the pain of that. Twice in my life I had beard. I had uh, beards. And uh, my children were little, and they'd get on me and yank my beard. Yeah! You know, they pulled it right out. You can read Isaiah 53 and see all that he suffered for us without response. He committed himself to the Lord. You see, self-defense is the most, one of the most basic human responses. Self-preservation. If you fall, it's so natural. If you fall, the most common thing is put your arms out. Protect yourself, or put your arms up like this and protect yourself. And in other ways, sounds like we got a good amen going on back there. <laughs> amen. Self-defense. Well, Jesus never sought to avenge or protect himself, and we're to be like him. Here is words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 41. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him 
the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Lord is teaching us, never avenge yourself. There are no exceptions. There are no fine print. There are no loopholes. I'm sorry about that. Some of you read your your homeowner's insurance with the wind that we've had, and maybe your awning came down, and, and you're looking for the fine print, the way that you and I can squirm out. There is none. Never avenge yourself. It's an imperative. Never, he's saying, must we return evil for evil. We must never do that. An illustration by way of contrast is Lemek. In uh, Genesis chapter 4, you can look at it later, verses 23 to 24, there he brags, this, uh, the descendant of Cain and Cain's family. Lemech uh, brags that, uh, that uh, he uh, was wounded, and in return for that, he killed, and he killed many, many people. What a contrast. We're never to be that, ever, ever. Rather, e, we are to strive to do what is right and good before all. That's what he's saying here in the end of verse 17. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. The word here that is right is the word, depending how it's used, it means beautiful. It means morally good. It means as others see us and they see us hurt and they watch us respond like Christ, it's beautiful. And people see that and they recognize this is so unnatural. It's supernatural. It's the work of Christ in a man or woman's life. And that's what God is doing. Wow, it ought to overwhelm us and overwhelms others as they see the grace of God only in our life that causes us to respond. You see, we're to do the right thing, and evil never fits that category. Our gracious response should commend us to our enemies and to those who witness our actions. Uh, Paul in Titus calls it this. Look at how he puts it. In Titus 2, I think I got the wrong verse there. Let me look it up. It's where he calls us to adorn the doctrine of God. You know, you, you put on adornment this morning when you got dressed. You clothed yourself. Is it the right verse? Oh, there it is. I see it at the end. Thanks, Raj. Yeah. Yeah, and the King James were to adorn the doctrine. And do not steal from them, but show those that have wronged you, but uh, show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching. There it is. They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, uh, attractive or beautiful or adorning the doctrine of God, the old translation puts. In other words, when we respond like Christ, it's like beautiful garments, and others see it. And that's how we are to respond. Now, the the great example and illustration of this in our Bible is David. Is uh, that wonderful David of the Old Testament in First Samuel chapter 24, it's a, it is so marvelous. David was being chased around the countryside by that maniac of a king, Saul, who started so well and ended so badly. 
Don't that be the epithet of your life. Began well, but ends badly. That's what Saul did. And Saul's chasing him around the countryside. He hated the top ten tune of the, of the day. You know, Saul killed his thousand. But David is tens of thousands. He's filled with envy. He's filled jealous. He wished the people loved him like they loved David. They really did. He had killed Goliath and all that. He had known that uh, David was going to be the heir, not his son Jonathan. And so he chases him. And in first... Uh, of Samuel chapter 24, we discover one of the accounts where David is hiding in the cave. Uh, he's on the lamb. He's got probably enormous caves there uh, in the Judean wilderness, and, there, and there's perhaps hundreds of men with him. It's dark, and the king comes into the cave uh, to use the men's room. <laughs> I never knew what it meant in the King James Version when it used euphemistic language, said he covered his feet. I go, I have no idea what that means. I figured it out later. And uh, David saw him, and now we're, the king is there with his army to kill David. And how does David respond? Well, David in this instant went up and, and cut off a corner of the king's robe right while he was that close, and David could have cut his head off in vengeance, but he didn't do it. Saul finishes his business, goes out of the cave. David goes over to the mouth of the cave, and he calls out to the king. It's a, it's a most wonderful passage. Let me uh, look at First uh, uh, Samuel 24. Just I don't want to take a long time here, but this really makes a vivid illustration of what our Lord's talking about, what Paul's talking about. First uh, uh, Samuel 24, verse 8. Let's just pick it up there. Then David went out of the cave, and he called out to the king, King Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David has been on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. And some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of, of your robe in my hand. I cut, it off, I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. And look at his response in verse 16, King Saul's response. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he, Saul, wept aloud. You are more righteous than I am, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away unharmed? Or does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way that you treated me today. And you can read more of that on your own later. 
But that in the Bible is a classic, beyond the Lord himself, not, not returning evil for evil, but it's his own, own uh, great-great-great-grandfather David who, in handling the wicked king, never returned evil for evil. And I'm saying that so we should be the same. It may be in your marriage. It may be in your family, your parents. Those are hard when they're close and evil is done to you. We are to commit ourselves to the Lord, and He will take care of us. He's in charge of all of that. Anyway, He he does a far better job of it than we ever could. And when we do right and do that which is right and beautiful and good, and others see it, it's uh, adorning the doctrine of God. It's wearing the very clothing of Christ. You'll be tempted, but don't do it. And if you have done it, ask the Lord to forgive you and cleanse you and wash your heart clean. We're like sheep being led to the slaughter. That's what the text tells us. Look at the second directive instructing us the godly response when wronged by our enemies. We must never return evil for evil. But second, we are to strive to live in peace with everyone. Look at verses 18 and 19. And if it is possible... As far as depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. The fulfillment of uh, this is uh, obviously conditional. Paul calls us, if it is possible, the very wording there reminds us of the conditionality of this. It reminds us that peace is a two-way street for sure. You and I can do all that we can possibly do to live at peace with all people and not have peace. I know that. It happens. You can do all that you can possibly do, go the extra mile and still not experience the joy of peace. For peace partly depends upon the attitudes and responses of our enemies. If possible, we live in a wicked world. Well, our response, number one, make sure that outside of the that our that our side of the relationship is right, and that our inner desire is to be at peace with all men and women, everybody. You know, there's some families that just thrive on fighting. They do. I've seen it. I mentioned the Hatfield and the McCoys. But there are just some that just like to stir it up. Always got people at odds. I'm telling you that that is not a mark of Christ, and it should not be a part of your life nor mine. We are to be blessed are the peacemakers, and we ought to as much as possible be those that when we enter the room, there's a sense of peace there and not conflict warring and and fighting and all that goes on, and it goes on everywhere, doesn't it? But it's a two-sided street. We are to live at peace with all men, even with those who are the meanest and the most undeserving people. We are to attempt to build bridges, at least do all that we can from our side of the street. Growing up in greater Buffalo, New York, we often would go to Canada for our family vacation in July. 
And then one thing about Buffalo, the Niagara River, and getting over to Canada, at least from the city of Buffalo, is the bridge known as the Peace Bridge. How many of you have ever crossed that? It'd be interesting to see. Oh, some of you do. Good. Peace, it was, the, it was named that because we have forever had peace for centuries now and with uh, the, the United States and Canada. And it expresses the, the peace of our border and our relationship between the two national entities, the common language, except for Quebec. And, and, and until 9-11, in recent days, you didn't even have to show a, a passport or anything else. It, I'm a United States citizen, and either way, you could go and make easy uh, uh, egress and, and return. And the peace bridge, and, and that symbolizes what you are and what I am to be as a result of the gospel taking root into our life in our families, our marriages, and in our classrooms, and in our ball teams, and in the workplace, and in the marketplace, and at the YMCA. And we're to be men and women of peace, as much as lies within us. It's the effect of the gospel in your life and in mine. We are to do this, of course, number two, short of compromising God's truth and compromising his standards. You see, peace is not the great virtue of all. Truth is. We live in a day of ecumenism where people, can't we all just, all churches of every stripe and variety, can't we just all get together and then the world would believe? Well, the answer to the question is, what would they believe? Because many of these that had churches are, uh, you know, Satan has his pastors. Do you know that? Satan has his pastors. Satan has his missionaries. Satan has his churches. Satan has his seminaries. Satan really embraces certain nations with darkness, voodooism and evil and foreign pagan worship religions. What, are we supposed to hug everybody? I don't think so. Unity isn't the great thing, as important as that is. How important is it for a local church to be united and endeavor to keep the unity of peace and the bonds of truth? But it's built on truth. I could not join together with other pastors of churches that, that deny the Word of God. What kind of unity would that be? That deny the person and work of Christ? What kind of message would that be? To deny the reality of salvation, of heaven and hell, and all of that? No way! You can't, you can't have any peace with that, you see? And so, as much as lies within us, we're to do that just short of compromising truth. In other words, we're to go the extra mile. But if truth is to be compromised, I'm not going to be a party to that. Why? Because I have to stand like you do before Christ someday, and we will give an account of ourselves. And I don't want to be a part of that. And we shouldn't, and you shouldn't. But having said that, we are to be, build the bridge of, of peace as far as we can across the river to make peace with all people. As, uh, and, and, and in this, Paul tells us in verse 19, I want to give a clarification. Do not take revenge, my friends. It's the word beloved, agape, my loved ones, he says. He says that because it's going to be hard, and he's softening their hearts. He said, but leave room for God's wrath. Let me submit to you this, this, uh, this leaving room for God's wrath. It's a, it's a command. Some think this refers to God's wrath. 
I say that because in the Greek, the word God is not in the text. It means leave way for wrath, if you were to translate it right from the Greek. Now, a lot of men in their writings think just as the NIV translated it, it's God, though the word God doesn't appear in the Greek. But referring to God, and, and they say, well, rightfully so, because he goes on to talk about and quoting the fact that our God is a God of vengeance, a God of wrath, and he'll deal with such. But there are a few others, and I agree with the minority in this case, he's not talking about God's wrath here. Let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say. Yes, I did want to say something else, number one, on God's wrath. Uh, Paul does go on to talk about God's wrath, and, and, and sooner or later, God will deal with injustice. And I just will remind you of the illustration of that with uh, King Ahab in 1 Kings. It should be chapter 21 and chapter 22. How God in his incredible way of dealing with wickedness. And God is and will. He's a God of wrath. He's a God of vengeance. God will repay. And he does a better job than you and I could ever do. And, and in, in First Kings uh, chapter 21, it's Naboth and that beautiful vineyard he had and Jezebel, his wife. And here's the king pouting because Naboth, because Naboth wouldn't sell him his uh, beautiful vineyard. How can I do this? This is my father's. I received it. And he's pouting. And Jezebel, that godless queen, said, come on, you're, you're the king. Quit acting like you're crying in the corner. Do something about it. And she manipulates behind the scene and has Naboth, this godly man, he, she has him executed, fabricated lies. And it goes on with Ahab and Jezebel in chapter 22 of that text uh, where, where now Ahab, and, and, the, and he, is, he is told that he is going to be, he's going to die now. It's not going to be pretty. And so Ahab has a conscience. He knows what he did is wrong. He knows of his wickedness. And so now he forms this alliance. He goes out to battle. He's going to try and fool God. People try to do that. You know that? They try to fool God. And he's out there, and he says, well, I'm, I'm going to go out in the battle. And that day, the kings went with the army out into the battle. It'd be interesting if Washington also went to the battlefront. We probably have less wars, uh, but uh, they stay back. Old men make wars. Young men fight them, seems to be. And in this world, there is war. I realize that. But he's out there. He says, I'm not going to dress like the king. I'm going to be like a commoner in First Kings 22. And he's out there trying to hide when his counterpart, the king of Judea, he, he's out there in flowing robes like the king. He was trying to hide. And the text says, there was an archer who took an arrow, and he pulled it back, and he let it fly at random. And guess where it hit? Ahab right between the armor. Do you know how hard it is to hit an arrow right between the seam of an armor? And God said it, and he is a God of wrath, and he deals with it in his time. And on that day, Ahab died. He bled all over that chariot, and the dogs licked the blood. And it goes on to talk about Jezebel's ending as well. God is a God of vengeance. He's a God of wrath. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think, number two, he's talking about the wrath of men and women that we experience. 
I think it's better to see this as your enemy's wrath. Let's read it again. He says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for wrath. It's implied. It's the wrath that you're experiencing from your enemies, people that would hurt you and harm you and do with their tongue or their fist. Yield to the wrath. We are to patiently endure the wrath of man who does us wrong. I'm saying to you, if evil rushes toward us, we are to love the evildoer and stand aside while he strikes out in blind selfishness. Now that ought to sound remarkably similar to our Lord's word of turning the other cheek in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. We read parts of that earlier. That's exactly what the Lord is teaching. We can do this, for we know that vengeance does not belong to us. It belongs to God, and God says that he will repay. In fact, Deuteronomy 32, he told us that way back, and in Hebrews 10, he repeats it. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, look at what God told through Moses' pen. It is mine to avenge. I, I, the Lord, I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. I will repay. Hebrews 10.30 says the same thing. It doesn't belong to us. God, who sees all, is only able to render an accurate judgment. We're not. If you think about it, we, we're so involved with it. We're hurt. We're suffering. We've been slandered. We've been hurt physically. Our loved ones have. We're off balance. And we're not even able to render a just uh, recompense for that. Only God is able to do that. And he will do it. It is certain. You put a period after the end of that one. It's absolute with certitude. God will do that. Well, three directives. First, we must never return evil for evil. Never. And second, we are to live at peace as much as possible uh, with all people even suffering their abuse, committing ourselves to the Lord. And finally, the third directive, instructing us to be the godly, responding people when wronged is this, we are to overcome evil with good. It's almost as if Paul is saying, listen, you want to respond to the evil, the wrath that you've just endured? Do you want to respond? Then this is the way that you are to respond. It's almost shocking when he says it. Let's read it in verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, it's a command, feed him. If he is thirsty, it's a command again, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, A, to withhold our vengeance is one thing. I mean, just not to respond, that's hard enough. But you know what's harder? It's to be kind to those that would hurt us. One is passive, the other is active. The one just bites its lip and uh, prays for the moments to pass. The other one reaches out. It's infinitely harder, but it's the grace of God in you and in me. It's far harder. 
If one hungers, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. These are just common bodily needs, and they symbolize all that may be needed by our enemy. To do this is to love our enemies. We think of it on a national plane. One of the reasons why we have such good friends nationally in this country uh, with countries like Germany and Japan was that, on a, again, a national level at the end of World War II, uh, we went in with American tax dollars and know-how and personnel and not only sought to keep the peace and try to establish uh, an abiding peace so that the world would not be thrust into such a war as the horror of World War II brought about, but to rebuild countries that eventually and today would compete against our manufacturing and intellectual know-how. The friendship that today we have with Japan reflects that on a national level. We didn't go in and annihilate them. We didn't go in and make it a United States of Japan. We didn't take over. The same thing with Germany, though it was divided in certain ways with the European countries. They become our friends and friends today. And we're glad for that, aren't we? On a personal level, it's the same thing. It's a returning a soft word for harshness. It's praying for people that use us and abuse us. It's, it's giving and meeting their needs. Oh, it's so contrary to the sinful bent that's within me and within you. It has to be God. You bop me in the face, I'll bop you. You hit my son, I'll run you over. That's the most natural response. There's nothing of grace in that. But to go beyond nothing, passivity, to caring for them, wow. But when you think of it, that's what God did for us in Christ. Exactly. We were enemies of God. And God treated us kindly and providing his own son. Wow. Well, B, by, by showing him kindness or her kindness, it's, uh, it's this metaphor of burning coals on the head. This is the way to, to move his or her heart. Perhaps this is the last thing that will bring that man or that woman to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the turning of the other cheek. You see, uh, let me tell you again, that turning of the other cheek is, uh, is uh, it's an insult. To slap someone on the right cheek is the, a backhand insult. Be willing to be insulted uh, again and again, Jesus is saying. And with your lack of an aggressive response, but committing yourself to the Lord and even treating them kindly may be the very last thing that will melt their hard, hateful, hateful hearts and see them come to the gospel. Perhaps uh, the only real way to destroy an enemy, one man writes, is to make a friend out of him. I suspect that's true. Make beautiful. Make a friend out of that enemy, and then you never have to look over your shoulder again. You do that with kindness. Our kind response may do this. Reminded of Hudson Taylor, that great missionary. And I have on the uh, a little accounting of Hudson Taylor. This is well known. One day when he was insulted, 
Hudson Taylor one evening was standing on a river bank in China, and he hailed a boat to take him across the river. Just as the boat was drawing near, a wealthy Chinese came along who didn't recognize Hudson Taylor as a foreigner because he had effective native dress. And so when the boat came, he struck and thrust uh, Hudson Taylor aside with such force that the latter fell into the mud. Hudson Taylor, however, said nothing. But the boatman refused to take his fellow countrymen, saying, No, that foreigner called me, and the boat is his, and he must go first. The Chinese traveler was amazed and astounded when he realized he had blundered. Hudson Taylor did not complain, but invited the man into the boat with him and began to tell him what it was in him that made him behave in such a manner. As a foreigner, he could have resented such treatment, but he did not do so because of the grace of God in him. Conversation followed, which Hudson Taylor had every reason to believe made a deep impression upon that man and upon his soul. You see, he overcame evil with good in that simple boat crossing. And that's what God desires of us. We are to express a lifestyle of grace. The reality of what's in your heart and life should be working its way to the surface of your life 24-7 as you live and move among people that live in darkness and are no friend of the Lord. Remember, for us to stoop to vengeance is to be ourselves conquered by evil. We are never to be. For us to do evil is to reveal that we have been conquered by evil. And it must never be. Never. That is never of the Lord. Well, what shall we say by way of lessons for our life? Number one, don't be surprised that you have enemies. Don't be surprised. Say, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice woman. People like me. I'm sure they do. Not all. Not all. And you may not even know it. It may be from afar. You may just just sound like someone they know, and they don't like you. They just, you know, they don't like the desk you work from. They don't, they don't like certain things. Maybe your children are growing nicely in the things of the Lord, and they despise you for that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an upside-down world. Don't be surprised. Don't let it ruin your day. Okay? People that uh, hate you, there are people that, that hate you and would hurt you if they could. They would. And, and oftentimes, uh, uh, with their swords in their mouth, their tongues will slander and hurt and cut. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me is untrue. I've healed from broken bones and the like, but sometimes the woundings of word are tough, aren't they? Very tough. How about number two? Second lesson. Spite and revenge are totally out of place in your new life in Christ. To be a spiteful person. I don't care what your mother did, your dad, your grandfather, any of these things. There's no exceptions to this. There's no loopholes. You're not the victim. Okay? We're all responsible. We're big people here in Christ, if you know Christ. Don't even keep a score. Don't do that. Husbands, wives, children with parents, with your boss at work, your coach, 
your neighbor. One for them, zero for us, we got to get even. None of that. Out, that's completely out. It's a hard teaching here, but it's true. It's the reality of Christ in you. Number three, good ought to be the dominant word in your life as a Christian. It's the goodness of God in your heart flowing to the surface. Goodness in good. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Good. As you adorn the doctrine of God, it's good and it's beautiful. And there ought to be a goodness about you as blessers. That's what Paul is saying. Good. Number four, hatred is always to be met with love, seen in the form of kindness. Kindness. We're to be kind to all that we meet. Not just those that are kind to us, right? Oh, we love those people, (laughs) don't we? But kind to those that hurt us. Wow. And then when you see that happening in your life, take uh, joy. For it's a great in- indicator that you're wonderfully bought with the price of the blood of Christ that saves. Wow. And you know, isn't it marvelous to watch us growing in grace? Because some of you might say, you know what, Pastor, a few years ago, I would have given a guy a black eye. But, you know, I just felt pity for him. Or, ladies, when you hear uh, evil spoken against you in the form of jealousy or whatever not, you know, to say, I would have been hurt before, or I would have, sh- I would have written letters, I would have let it go. And you know what? I just felt like praying. For- I felt compassion for them. That's the grace of God. And that shows you're moving into fourth and fifth grade. In the things of God. Someday we'll graduate. Wow, that's the, that's the commencement. And I can't wait. And we're going to party hardy at that day. Number five and last, unless you are saved, God's wrath, I remind you, does hang over you. You must be born again. You must be born again. You must come to receive Christ the Lord as your Savior from sin or you're lost forever. I can do anything to help you in that. I'm here to help you. The quietness of your heart and your own prayer time. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. And you shall be saved. Well, enemies. Anyone here not have any enemies? Raise your hand. I saw. I thought so. And we're a happy people. We're a peace, peace, peaceful people, Right? Well, most of us, right? It's going to happen. How should we respond? God is working in us to respond like Jesus Christ would respond. May God help us. 